today's date is January 21st, 2020, and yesterday was the first day of 2020. No, I fucked up already. (laughs) I took us back a year. (laughs) You guys, this is why I shouldn't try to say numbers. I think I'm going to get them right, and I absolutely don't. So it's not 2020. Think the Lord, baby Jesus, that it is not 2020. But what I was basically saying is yesterday feels like the first day of 2021. It was the inauguration of President Joe Biden and Madam Vice President Kamala Harris. And honestly, I am feeling so hopeful. They're not our saviors. There is still so, so, so much work to be done. But doesn't it feel so good to live somewhere where we actually feel like that work is going to be done? Where it's a possibility now? Yeah. I feel like yesterday and today has just... It's been the first time in way too long I feel like I've been able to like really breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. And... I mean, first off, it's so crazy that December of 2020 had 50 days. <laughs> it was so I mean, long. That's, I didn't know months could do that. But as we all know now, they can. Well, that's and like last, sometimes do. It's like last March when it was six months long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, honestly, it really did go from March 2020 to November. I know. <laughs> to December. <laughs> Like, literally, last summer didn't happen. No, it was just a hot March. (laughs) But honestly, I am just so much more hopeful for the future than I've been in so long. And, oh my god. When I tell you I was working from the living room from my couch, I had... I have this, like, TV tray kind of laptop table that um, I bought when I was working from home during the election. I was like, oh, I'm going to be in front of the TV for this. But also, you know, I have a job that I need to do. <laughs> uh, so I pulled that out again, and it was scary. I was nervous every time. Every time the camera lingered a bit too long or they were outside a little too long, I just... And it's sad that I think a lot of people were thinking that. Yeah. We're worried what... Is someone going to try to do something? I mean, literally two weeks ago, our our capital was under siege. So it's not that far out of the realm of thought. And it's really sad that that is kind of almost an expected. But I'm I'm hopeful that that's not going to be the norm. Right. I'm holding out hope. You know, the the insurrection a couple of weeks ago is still something that I'm grappling with in my mind, that that was reality, that that actually happened. And now we're here today, and it's a brand new day. And I want to look at it that way. Like I said, there is a shit ton of work to do. So let's get started. And yes, I 100% had MSNBC on from like 7am until like midnight yesterday. And I just had this moment where I was like, is this what adults do? Is like, am I like a real adult now? Just like watching the news all the time and being engaged and thoroughly enjoying every moment of it. I'm not engaged. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. Not that kind of engaged. I don't think that's happening for us. Just but kidding. But can I get engaged to like Ari Melber or Steve Kornacki? Because, you know, I was both engaged watching them and also wanting to be engaged by them. You know, I have developed 
a crush on Chris Hayes over the last, you know, few months. He's just really cute. And I like everything about him. But he is married. So I don't think it's going to work out for me. But hey, Chris, if you become available and are looking, I am available and probably still will be at that point in time. News anchors and reporters and just journalists in general. That's hot. That is so hot. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I'm going to say hello. So hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we're going to bring you the news about murder today. Yes. Yes, we are. We're going to... This episode... Y'all. You know from the title to hopefully you pre- you prepared yourselves. Yeah, when we said we're looking forward, it's because we're scorched earth policy the past. Your childhood, gone. The past, gone. Only looking forward because that's all you can do. Because <laughs> we're about to ruin that childhood. But before we run your childhoods, I'm going to remind you guys about Patreon. Be sure to hop on over, check us out. We've got a lot of fun tiers. We've got a lot of fun things over there like our murder minis. And I can officially announce that our murder minis are coming back. We took a bit of a pause. Those of you on Patreon are aware of this. We were doing some other things, trying to survive. Yeah. But starting on Thursday, the 28th, those murder minis are coming back. So if you don't know what those are, murder minis are additional episodes that are on Patreon only. Also today, we wanted to give a huge, huge thank you for two of our newest members of our Blood and Wine family, Dara Jordan and Alexis Van Boven. Thank y'all so, so much for joining the family, for joining Patreon. We are so happy to have you both. And we couldn't do this without y'all. Yes, welcome, you guys. And also, don't forget about our live drink with us that we will be hosting on February 5th at 8 p.m. Central. Hop on over to Patreon for all of our Patreon members. You can join our Zoom call, chat with us. We're really looking forward to seeing you guys and talking to everyone. Yes, and the link for that Zoom call will be, um, we'll put it like in a Patreon message post on the wall like just a couple days before also if you haven't make sure to uh, subscribe to us on whatever podcast listening platform you choose to listen to us on we're on stitcher podbean there's apparently like a pod stitch it's not stitcher it's not podbean it's pod stitch i think it's unaffiliated with both but also the big ones apple podcasts pandora spotify Check us out, subscribe, that way every Tuesday when we release a new episode, it'll go right to your listening device. Yes, totally subscribe. So, today's episode, like we talked about just a moment ago, we are here to ruin your childhood. Because we all know that there are some things that when you learn them as an adult, and you look back on it, it kind of crushes everything around you. And so we're bringing that to the forefront. And obviously it's related to murder. And you'll see what we're talking about when we get to our cases. But just buckle up and prep for that childhood to be ruined. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for that. <laughs> uh, but here we are. It's what we do. We're dream killers. Anyway, before we do that, before we unpleasantly unwind the past, Tyler... Let's tell our listeners about the wine that we will be drinking today. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've done the same bottle, but today we're both having the 2019 Sabalia Red Blend from Portugal. 
And the reason we're able to both do the same bottle is because we got these from Bright Sellers. This is 100% not sponsored, but we were chatting. And so we were like, you know what? Let's do this. I think we'd already had quite a bit of wine when we were like, let's just do it. And as it turned out, the like custom wine selections we got were pretty different, except we each had this one bottle. And so we were like, okay, obviously that we, we have to. We have to do this one. One of the things that I really like about this bottle is that on the front, like this label is really cool. On it, there's Lady Liberty, or it's Liberty from that painting, Liberty Leading the People by Eugene Delacroix. And in her other hand, like in one hand, she's got the flag. <laughs> in the other hand, she's holding a bottle of wine. Did you notice that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just love it. Like, this is one of those wine bottles that if I saw this in the store, I'd buy it immediately no matter what kind it is because this label's so cool. Well, and I also love how the name of the wine, the Sabalia, is like over it in red in a very like Killing Eve font. <laughs> like It really is. Like we're about to go into this scene with Liberty, but Sandra O oh is also there. And we're going to have wine with them. Liberty and God. Sandra. <laughs> not Eve, not the character in the show, just actually Sandra O. Oh. God, I honestly, celebrities to have a glass of wine with, yes. One of my favorites, still Mindy Kaling. I want to have dinner with her. Okay, well, I mean, you can invite Sandra O oh over after dinner for just wine. Right. So before we open the bottle, let's chit chat a little bit about like what this wine is. So it's a red blend and it's described as a richly flavored red blend that has notes of dark fruits like plum and black cherry alongside dried fruits like figs and dates. And then it has some secondary flavors of chocolate and spice. What's really nice is that Bright Sellers, with each bottle of wine, they give you a little like cheat sheet card about like all the stuff. But I just turned the card over and it has the label on it. And it looks so good. I'm like... Am I a loser if I, like, keep the card? Not for the information, but just for the label? No, because I'm doing the same. I love this card. <laughs> yeah, so this wine is 13.4% alcohol. It is a full-bodied red, which, I mean, with all of those descriptors that Tyler listed out, this one's going to be full and fruit forward. And the pairings that it has are something that you don't normally see. Like a lot of the times I feel like when you see a red wine, it's like, this goes well with steak. Steak, bacon cheeseburgers. <laughs> this says it goes really well with marinated olives, lentil and mushroom veggie burgers, which honestly, really good to know because you never hear about what wine goes well with a veggie burger. Just going to say. You really don't. It also says it goes really well with vacation planning sessions, and I can 100% agree that sounds like a great pairing with this beautiful label. I mean, I think vacation planning sessions right now, because none of us want to be <laughs> Puerto Vallarta gays, I feel like right now vacation planning sessions are a lot more similar to like when you get on Zillow and you start just looking at houses <laughs> that are, you know, $900,000 and you're like, oh God, see, but I would change the bathroom tile and stuff where it's never going to happen. You're never going to touch that tile because you're never going to go anywhere near that house. But it's nice to pretend. Yeah, but at least in the future, we will be able to travel again. In the future, we probably can't buy a $900 million home. Is that what you said? That's a lot. I said 900000 <laughs> Well, Also, by extension, you can't afford a $900 million home. Uh, but Brittany, that's what we call 
like a football stadium or a skyscraper. <laughs> okay, Tyler, what did we say at the very beginning of this episode about me and numbers? Apparently, I'm having an off night, okay, you guys? This is, like Tyler said, it's a wine from Portugal, and it's an old world wine. It grows in a moderate climate, and I'm really excited to open this up. And Tyler, like you said, it's been so long since we've shared a bottle like this then I'm interested to see what we both think about the same wine instead of telling each other about different wines. I know. Okay, well, let's crack into this. Oh, this is a nice little cork. I mean, it's like real cork, but... It went in very smooth. I know. It Maybe this is going to sound real dumb to y'all, but it's like <laughs> corkboard cork, which is what cork is. But it's like... <laughs> <laughs> but it's like very smooth going in. <laughs> okay, it's fine. I'll shut up. No, I 100% understand what you mean. <laughs> the cork is like. <laughs> the cork is just like cork. Just amazing. Okay, Tyler, are we going to try to time the pop at the same time? We can try and fail, but that doesn't mean we won't try. So, ready? Okay, three, two, one, go. Ooh, she stained the cork. All right, I'm going to pour a glass of this. Same. Oh my god, it's so dark. Yes, it is. That is one of the purplest wines I think I've ever seen. It's so dark. You like tip the glass and you cannot see through this. Like this is like like, this is a black wine. (laughs) It's like the consistency of milk i mean it's not but oh my god what water yours is bad then (laughs) i was gonna say like balsamic vinegar but like red not brown yeah but have you smelled it yet it smells amazing that's lux what is what do you what do you mean what does that mean it smells luxury oh i'm sorry i'm a little too old to understand when you don't say the entire word sometimes (laughs) I guess. (laughs) I feel like Lux is a pretty well-known, like... Okay, well, you don't need to be so sus. No. I learned that new one. It smells really earthy, and then I'm getting some, like, cherry notes, I feel. Like, I that black cherry and earthiness. All right, well, I... Yes. I want to taste it. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, I thought for a second I almost broke my glass. I kind of hit it hard. (laughs) That was like a gong sound. Oh, that's like bright and zippy. This is not what I was expecting. No. It's almost like the plum skins are giving us more of like, there's like a bitter bite to this. Like a bitter tart. It's not feeling as full as I anticipated. I know. I was expecting this to be like a heavy bitch. I, but I did too. No. Well, and at this point, I am not getting getting much of an aftertaste at all. It's just, it kind of disappears. Mm-mm. I wonder if this one needs to breathe a little bit hmm. to open up. Because right now, I'm only getting a little bit of that like plum and black cherry. I'm not tasting any earthy notes. I, I'm getting zero spices. I'm getting zero spice or chocolate. I'm getting some of the fig coming through. It's opening up a little bit more, but... We may have to revisit this one at the half and see what we're feeling because this is football. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, I mean, this is what I drink with football. This is our our halftime show. We'll be talking about wine. Yeah. 
for the halftime Honestly, show? Honestly, we're basically the real housewives. Two. It's good, by the way. It is good. Like, yes. We're not... <laughs> I was like, what? I enjoy this. I think I'm enjoying this a little more than you are right now. I think I'm just waiting for it to open up more. Like, for me, this is one of the ones that you would decant for like 30 minutes. Like, I feel like it needs yeah. that. So that's why I'm wanting to save my full judgment until halftime. But okay. But anyway, yes, this wine is good. I'm obviously drinking it. But now that we've opened this wine, Tyler, number one, great to share a bottle with you again. Been a while. I know. I enjoy this. But now let's um let's just rip out the joy and uh, ruin childhoods. So Tyler, Shit. <laughs> Tyler, tell me about your case. What'd you pick? How am I gonna ruin y'all's childhood? Yeah. The case I'm doing today is the murder of Judith Barcy. And um, trigger warning before we jump in, this case has some very heavy child abuse. It, Y'all, this one, this one's rough. This one's a rough case. The sources I used, I used the Wikipedia page for Judith Barcy. I also used her IMDb page as well as an article in the LA Times by John Johnson and Gabe Fuentes. So, Judith Barcy, she was a child actress. She was born in Los Angeles County in California on June 6th of 1978, and she was the daughter of Joseph Eastvan Barcy and Maria Virovax. Both of them were immigrants to the U.S. from Hungary, and they fled the Hungarian People's Republic during the uprising there in 1956. But, like, they didn't know each other back in Hungary, and they immigrated to the U.S. at different times, and then kind of, like, meet cute, met each other at a restaurant in California that Maria worked at as a server. That's always really interesting to me when two people fled from the same thing and find each other. But at the same time, I think a lot of people who flee go to a common area. Yeah. Like, I don't know if at this time there was, like, a neighborhood in Los Angeles that was, like, a little Hungary or, like, a predominantly Hungarian right. neighborhood. I know in a lot of big cities, I mean, like, in L.A., there's... Tehrangelis, Chinatowns, and like Koreatowns in a lot of big cities. I always think it's really interesting and something that, I don't know, I feel like when you grow up in a city, because we grew up just outside Oklahoma City that has like one of the largest Vietnamese populations in the southern U.S., but I know that Vietnamese town, I think it's just the Klassen neighborhood now, but it used to be called Little Saigon. But anyway, that's just so much just a cultural like heart of the city and so i'm like huh yeah i like that they found each other and like had each other and had this shared experience which is a pretty intense one to have so it's good to have someone else who knows what you went through yeah so after they met they eventually got married and then had judith flash forward a few years judith again was born in 1978 so now we're up to winter of i guess 1983 Judith, she's five and a half, and she and her mom are at an ice skating rink in the San Fernando Valley. And a crew is there shooting a commercial, and they notice Judith. She's, like, just artfully skating and, like, enjoying herself. And also, Judith looked really young. She was five and a half, but she looked like a three-year-old, which I don't have kids or, like, young cousins or, like, nieces or nephews or anything, so I'm like... I don't know what the three-year-old versus five-year-old looks like. If they're walking and, like, 
sort of talking. I don't know how old you are. It's really hard for me to guess, too. But um, the commercial crew director, they saw her and they were like, oh, oh, she's she's going to be a star. And so they started like booking her in commercials. And from there, her career exploded. Which it's interesting. She may look like she's three, but she's five. So she's got more capabilities and she's more able to act, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, because the thing is... Like, think of any role that's, like, a snarky or independent six-year-old. I don't... I mean, six-year-olds, they're sweet and stuff, but I I feel like it's very few that would have, like, a natural acting ability at that age. But if you can get a ten-year-old who legitimately looks like a six-year-old... That would suck to look like you're six when you're ten. But, hey, if it also involved you making thousands of dollars... I, th- I think that's fine. And thus, what begins the issue of child actors and having a difficult time growing up? Yeah, that is very true. So Judith's first role was in a movie called Fatal Vision. She went on to be in more than 70 commercials and different guest roles wow. on TV. Oh, yeah. And in addition to being on TV, she was also in several different films, including Jaws the Revenge... She was the voice of Ducky in The Land Before Time, which is where I know her voice from, because that was, like, my favorite movie growing up. You made us watch it all the time. It was so good, and it made tree stars look so delicious, even though that's a fucking leaf. (laughs) But it was a tree star, and I love the movie, too. She also played Anne-Marie in All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is not a movie I've seen. Oh my god! That movie is so good. See, you watched Land Before Time over and over and over. I watched All Dogs Go to Heaven over and over. Literally ask Mama. I That movie was so sad. And for some reason, I like to torture myself and watch it. It's beautiful. And it's so good. And I did not realize she did the voice of the little girl. Yeah. What is the one movie um, that's similar in vain to these, I think, similar time? There was live action. It was the animals. Was the two dogs and the cat? Homeward Bound. Homeward Bound! Ugh. Sassy and Shadow and Chance. Yes. I, God. Honestly, kids movies in the late 80s, early 90s, they they already wanted to destroy your childhood. They did. They were like, let's devastate some three-year-olds. That just pre-ruined my childhood. But let's get into this and just continue to ruin everything. So, by the time Judith had started the fourth grade, she was earning an estimated $100,000 a year. And that's in 80s money. And that's to a child. That's, wow. That's bank. Yeah, and that's equivalent to like 250000 a year today. Uh, but yeah, so she was making bank. And because of that, her family was able to buy a three-bedroom house in West Hills, Los Angeles. This is also before like... I don't know if it was just gentrification or what, but this was like when houses in LA were like, ooh, that's expensive. That's a $100,000 a year house, which like 250000 yeah, that's expensive. Bitch, you cannot find a house in Southern California that like has a roof and walls for less than like half a million. <laughs> I know. But anyways, the, you know, we're not a real estate podcast. We're not. I can't do math, so no one wants me to be their realtor. No, no, they don't. But yeah, Judith, she is making bank. She's like nine, ten years old. Her family is able to get a house. And she's, I mean, fourth grade, that's like nine years old. 
she's only three foot eight inches tall so she's still really short for her age and i wonder if she had some kind of syndrome or illness that affected her growth i couldn't really find anything about it but she did start getting hormone injections at ucla to like help encourage her growth yeah it's like she had stunted growth i remember hearing about that i don't know i mean is that actually legitimately a thing where your growth can just be stunted it's got to be caused by something well i mean like malnourishment i know can very heavily stunt your growth i think that could have played a big factor some of the stuff we'll get into but because of how small and how petite she was again this was another way that a lot of casting directors would cast her as children that were quite a bit younger than she was so like when she's 10 She's playing seven and eight-year-olds. You know, she's playing those smart, intelligent, really good acting children children. I mean, ten is still very much child-child, but, like, seven is so different. So her mom, Maria, she was the main, like, driving force behind Judith's career and becoming this, like, Hollywood starlet. But also, she did a lot to make sure that Judith had just a normal, happy childhood as well. So really trying to balance, Judith wanted to be a star and be successful, and Maria was like, then we're gonna fucking do that, babe. But also wanting her to not grow up and have to be a 10-year-old adult. And so, like, one of the things I read that she did that just, like, touched me was, like, for school lunch, her mom would bring her, like, traditional Hungarian meals, like duck. Oh, wow. Just, yeah, just so, you know, she didn't forget her heritage and she, I mean, had this normal mom cooking her meals and stuff. So, as much as her mom is, like, just being this amazing, supporting, loving person in her life, her dad is not. So beginning in, like, 1985, her dad, Joseph, he would come home drunk instead of going to work as a plumber. And he also refused to let Maria work. So at this point, this is before Judith is, like, at the peak of her success and everything. So they, like, had to go on welfare because instead of working, he was just drinking and also refused to let his wife get a job. And so the entire family is being supported by their, at this point, seven, eight-year-old daughter. That's so unfair to her. It bothered me enough that they used her money to buy a house. Yeah. Like, even that, I'm like, you know, I can understand arguments, but it's also, it's not your money. That should be straight up going into a bank account. She gets to use whatever is in that bank account when she's 18. You know, maybe some of it is used to like, I don't know, if she's 16 and wants to buy a car. Okay, she has her bank account. But yeah, yeah. it's problematic. It is. As Judith's career success increased, her father became increasingly angry. He would threaten to kill himself, his wife, and his daughter. His heavy drinking, it led to him being arrested three times with a DUI. And then in December of 1986, Maria reported his threats and his physical violence toward her to the police. Good! Well, police weren't able to find any signs of physical abuse on her. So because of that, she decided not to press charges against him. Surprise, surprise. They didn't fucking believe a woman. Yeah. But... After this incident with the police, Joseph, he reportedly stopped drinking. 
but he would continue to threaten Maria and Judith. Some of these threats included telling them he was going to cut their throats, telling them he was going to burn down the house. He also would do things like, um, I guess they'd received a telegram for Maria that a relative in Hungary had died, and he hid it from her because he didn't want her to leave the U.S. with Judith. This dude is too extreme. Like, what the hell? Oh, he is a monster. The physical violence, it very much continued. And at one point, Judith, who again, is like nine years old, she told one of her friends that her dad threw pots and pans at her. And one of them like hit her in the face. She got a nosebleed. And again, she it said she told her friend. I'm imagining she's telling another nine-year-old. Yes, I'm imagining that as well. As a result of all this trauma and abuse she was going through, Judith, she began gaining weight. She also started showing some very disturbing behavior, like plucking out her own eyelashes, pulling out her cat's whiskers. Oh my god. In 1987... When she was leaving L.A. to go to the Bahamas to film Jaws the Revenge, her dad pulled out a knife on her, like put a knife to her throat, and he told her, if you decide not to come back, I will cut your throat. He is saying this to his nine-year-old daughter. I can't with this guy. He's garbage. Uh, yeah. Well, because at the beginning, it's just, I mean, kind of like I said, it's like, oh, meet cute, you know, similar backgrounds going through similar things that's sweet but oh my god he is literally like darkness incarnate yes in may of 1988 judith had a full-on like breakdown mental breakdown in front of her agent her agent ruth was like okay something is not right here maria you need to take her to child psychologist maria was like okay the child psychologist identified severe physical and emotional abuse, and reported everything to the Child Protective Services. Did Maria know about the things that her husband was doing? Yes and no, I think. I mean, Maria was also being heavily, heavily abused herself. Yes. I don't know if she knew to the extent that Judith was as well, or how much Judith was being abused as well. It just surprises me, unfortunately, That she did take Judith to the child psychologist. That that step actually took place. Yeah. I mean, CPS, Child Protective Services, was called. An investigation was started. And Maria told the caseworker that she was starting divorce proceedings. And I guess because of that, because she told them that she intended to divorce him, the investigation was dropped. Doesn't mean they're safe right now. I know. She told them that she and Judith were going to move into an apartment in Panorama City. She'd recently, like, already rented this apartment, and she and Judith would stay there during the day, so they wouldn't have to be around Joseph, but at night, they would return home. And she told the the caseworker and the investigators on the case, like, yeah, we're gonna move there, move there. I don't think Joseph knew about the apartment at all. Maria's friends, though, they were urging her to, like, follow through with the plan. Like, girl, get yourself. Get Judith out of there. We are here for you. But, I mean, Maria was terrified. 
and she didn't want to lose their home, all their belongings. And also, I mean, she's she is so much a, a victim in all of this. And that's a lot. That's a huge thing to do. And as we've talked about, it's not just the physical abuse, but the emotional abuse right. is massive. So I am sure he is doing everything in him to put it in her head that if she decides to do this, I mean, she's killing her daughter, basically. God, that is just so manipulative. Yeah. On Wednesday, July 27th, Eunice Daly, she was their next door neighbor. She heard a loud bang coming from the Barcy house while she was out like watering her plants at 830 in the morning. And she thought it sounded like a gunshot. So she called the police. By the time that police arrived, though, the house was on fire. When police entered the house... Three people were found dead oh in what looked like a murder-suicide, and the bodies belonged to Judith Barcy, her mother Maria, and her dad, Joseph. Joseph had shot both Maria and Judith, and then poured gasoline on their bodies and set them on fire, and then he went to the garage and shot himself. I don't even really know what to say to any of that. That is... This is... There's not really anything to say. This is tragic. Yeah. Judith and her mom, they were buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in like adjacent plots in the cemetery there. All of Judith's toys that weren't destroyed in the fire were given to the local Goodwill. And her best friend continued to go over to the house after she died to feed her cats, make sure they were okay for months after Judith's murder. Judith's final film was All Dogs Go to Heaven, and it was released posthumously in November of 1989. Oh my god, Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that was her last film. The director of that and Land Before Time, Don Bluth, he praised her as being just absolutely astonishing how she understood verbal direction, even in the most like sophisticated situations. I mean, she was a star. The closing credits song, Love Survives, was written and dedicated to Judith uh, in her memory as a final gift and farewell to her from the film's cast and crew. And that is the case, the murder of Judith Barcy and her mom, Maria. You did crush and ruin and destroy my childhood. Yeah. And your own. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners. Yeah. So pour some more wine. That was a lot, dude. That was a lot. Yeah. That case was uh, very, very hard to research. But we're we're at the halftime. I think we both and our listeners all need just just a little break before we get into your case. And you promised to tell us what you thought of the wine. So, dear God, let's look forward and switch gears and tell, just tell us about wine. Let's talk about wine for a second. It's opened up a lot, for sure. This is a really good wine. It's very drinkable. It's dry, but the tannins are very mild. And that is one of the things. That it's interesting. It's tart, but it's not super tannic. And I don't feel the twinge in the back of my cheeks. Yeah. I don't feel that. You know what it, you know what it reminds me of? What? The Mayomi Pinot Noir. But a little bit earthier. Yeah, a little bit earthier, but this is not a full-bodied red. I will say, this is probably, for me, one of the best red blends I've ever had because it's not so oh, yeah. fruit-forward. It has a lot more of a complex 
flavor, definitely getting that cherry. And for me... Yeah, that tart yes. black cherry, yeah. That is still what's leading, but I'm getting more of those spices now, and that's what's adding like this little bit of a punch, and it's adding some earthiness. And this is not sweet. This is dry, 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 dry. Yeah. And I love that. Like, it's one of those where it- I can feel it on my tongue. I'm like, yep, that's a dry wine. Uh Oh, 100%. Well... With that nice little um, pause, let's jump right back into it. And Brittany, tell me about your case that is going to ruin mine and everyone else's childhood. So mine is the murder of Josh Sutter, and I have aptly named it the Bloody Red Power Ranger. Oh. The sources I used, an article in the LA Times by James Cueley, another article in the LA Times from their homicide division, an article from Narratively that was a republished article from Mel Magazine, and that's capital M-E-L. An article in Time by Abigail Abrams. And the Wikipedia page for Ricardo Medina Jr. Ricardo Medina Jr., who was also known as Rick, he is best known for his role as Cole Evans in Red Wild Force Ranger, on the TV series Power Rangers Wild Force. This was the version of Power Rangers that aired from 2002 to 2003. So, Tyler, this is not the one we grew up watching. Okay, because I'm thinking of... Tommy? I mean, that was his character name. Do you remember? It was like Amy Joe something was the Pink Ranger. Uh I may have watched an older Power Rangers than you because I was the one, like the original Power Rangers and then the original movie. See, I remember the Power Rangers with, like, Rita Repulsa, the, like, witch lady villain. Oh, I don't remember the villains. Everyone knows Rita Repulsa. She's a gay icon. Honestly, I could not tell you what the Power Rangers themselves looked like because I didn't give a shit about the people. I wanted to see them in their Power Ranger suits. I mean, that's totally fair. We all did. So Rick also played Deeker, who was like this half-human cursed Nylock in Power Rangers Samurai from 2011 to 2012. So this one's a little bit more recent. But what you might not know about Rick is that he is also a murderer. Red Power Ranger killed someone, is what you're telling me. Yes, and not on the Power Ranger show in real life. For Rick, at a certain point, things had started slowing down for him after Power Ranger Samurai. And he was really looking to take some time off. He wanted to escape from Hollywood. And he and his roommate, Josh Sutter, lived together in Palmdale, which is in northern Los Angeles County. Mm. Josh had moved to LA in 2011 to help his sister, Rachel Kennedy, open up a business. And her business specialized in the sale of rescue dogs. And it was called Lucky Puppy. Um, I love that. I know. It's adorable. So they all lived together on a house on a ranch. And this ranch, it was a lot of land. It was this like haven for all of these dogs. It's where the dogs were kept. Rick started living there after Rachel hired him to take care of the animals. So Rachel actually met Rick a few months earlier on an online dating site. They were both in the entertainment industry. Rachel had been a former model and Rick, as we know, was an actor And they got along because they really loved dogs. Their first date went really well, but halfway through their second date, she just really wasn't feeling it. He said something that just like turned her off and she's like, nah, this isn't going to be a romantic match. And they kind of parted ways. Not long after that, though, she thought of Rick when she was looking for help on the ranch. 
He had been a dog trainer in his previous life. They had this great conversation about how much they both love dogs. She called him. She hired him. And the agreement that they made was that he would live rent-free on the ranch in exchange for taking care of the animals and providing any other handyman services that she might need. And she even put his name on the lease. So this is a, oh, okay. this is a pretty good deal for both of them. She's yeah. getting free labor. He's getting free place to live. There you go. But before too long, Rick started acting really weird right after he was hired. He had like this very erratic attitude and emotion and outbursts that would happen. And he'd been there for a couple of months and Rachel asked him to move out, but he refused. Rachel said he got really angry and he threatened to release the dogs into the woods and let them be eaten by the coyotes. Oh, what the fuck? Yeah, total like threatening releasing of the dogs and she's not feeling a lot of control his name's on the lease so she's really worried and so she calls her brother josh who lives in the la area and she's like josh can you come move to the ranch like i don't i i'm worried about me i'm worried about the dogs like i'm just really worried and he's like of course yeah at this point in time rachel's also contacting the landlord because again like i said rick's name is on the lease and she's working with the landlord to evict him the landlord in december of 2014 had offered to issue a 30-day notice to terminate the lease that lists rick as the tenant if he didn't leave then they could take legal action because he was like you know i'll make this lease end if he doesn't get out that's when we can get the lawyers involved and so the plan basically was to kick him out on february 1st 2015 When Josh got there, he and Rick, they didn't really get along. There was a lot of arguments that were happening. And on January 31st, 2015, so like the day before they were going to try to have this whole eviction thing go through and get rid of him, Josh is at home. He's in the kitchen. He's on the phone with his dad, Don. And the two of them were discussing different ways to grow organic vegetables and feed the dogs. Like, they're wanting the dogs to have this very rich in nutrients diet, so they're talking about the best way to do it. That is so wholesome. It's so wholesome. Like, Josh loved these dogs. He, like, lived for it. It was like a family thing, because this is his sister. He's living with his sister, calling his dad, asking these questions. And Mm -hmm. while he's on the phone with his dad, Rick's girlfriend got to the house, and Rick kind of walks out, going to help her with some of the things out of her car. And Dawn... Here's arguing in the background on the phone with Josh. And Josh was just like, oh, dad, don't worry. It's Rick and his girlfriend. They argue all the time. They finished up their call. Everything seems normal. Shortly after this, though, John and Rick start arguing in the kitchen. According to Rick's story, Josh was really upset that Rick's girlfriend had come over and Rick was getting some utensils in the kitchen for their takeout. They had some type of altercation and things got physical. So after the altercation in the kitchen, Rick and his girlfriend go back to Rick's bedroom. This is where Rick kept a 30-inch steel blade that he described to police later as his Conan the Barbarian sword, and he locks his door. Oh, I don't like this at all. Rick then stated later to police, this is when Josh forced his way into his room and Rick, protecting himself, stabs Josh in the abdomen with a sword multiple times. I just don't believe him. I know. Seems too convenient, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, we don't, I don't know Josh as a person. 
I don't know that much about him other than he moved to LA to help his sister with her dog business, loves dogs, and literally was just on the phone with his dad about growing vegetables. So maybe there was some altercation over silverware in the kitchen. But knowing that dude's getting evicted the next day, I can't imagine Josh being like, I'm going to bust down the door and argue about silverware and parked cars. I know. There's so much mystery around what actually happened. Rick, like I said, he claimed that he stabbed Josh in self-defense after Josh forced the door open. And this is where Rick said he and his girlfriend went after this altercation with Josh in the kitchen to for sanctuary or whatever. After the stabbing, Rick called 911 on himself. He told the operator that he had feared for his life. He claimed that Josh attacked him, and in defense, he stabbed Josh with a nearly three-foot sword that he kept by his bedroom door for protection. See, Who the hell is keeping a fucking sword for protection? By your bedroom door in a house. Yep. Like, it's not even by the front door of the house if someone's trying to break in. It's in your bedroom. Like, what? Yeah. And a sword. Who owns swords? Apparently Rick does. So while he's on the phone with the 911 operator, you can hear Josh screaming in the background. At this point in time, he's laying in the floor covered in blood, and he's yelling, you came at me first, you came at me first. Paramedics were dispatched to the ranch at about 3.50 p.m., because again, this is like the middle of the afternoon. When they arrived, Josh was still alive, laying on the floor in the hallway. He was drifting in and out of consciousness. He had stab wounds on his abdomen, his right flank, and his back. Okay, so he's been stabbed multiple times by this sword. Multiple times. There's blood everywhere. He ended up losing a half gallon of blood after being stabbed a total of 10 times. The ambulance takes him to the emergency room where he did go into cardiac arrest and soon after he died. You don't stab someone in self-defense ten times. With a sword. Yeah, we learned that in Chicago. He fell on his knife 16 times or whatever, however the song goes. But yeah, like that's just straight up, that's murder. Yeah, you're not going to fall on a sword ten times. Police arrested Rick when they arrived at the scene. There was just too much going on and they're like, nope, we need to talk to you. Mm -hmm. So Rick and his girlfriend were interviewed separately. And while their stories were pretty similar... There were a few inconsistencies that raised a a lot of red flags for investigators. Rick told police that his back was to the door when Josh came in, while his girlfriend said that he was actually facing the door. So this is pretty important when you think about his self-defense claim. Yeah. If he's facing the door and like he's prepped for it, I I don't know. If his back is to it, it seems more likely of him grabbing the sword in self-defense. The other way seems like he's waiting for something yeah he's he's waiting for josh to get in with the sword like he's waiting with the sword for josh to get exactly there's also not a lot of damage on the door itself at this time though there was not enough evidence for any type of murder charge the police were still pretty suspicious of rick but they ended up having to release him while the investigators are waiting on some of their results from the the crime lab and the coroner's report These things, as we know, they can take months. We like to think it's just a couple days. It's not. It takes a lot of time. So while this is happening, Rachel decides she's going to try to pull the pieces together on her own. She's tired of waiting on the police and waiting on investigators. 
which I totally get that. Respect her for doing her thing. But these things can take time. As fucking frustrating as that is, it can. Yeah. She had hired a crime scene cleanup company and they took before and after photos. So she had photos. Also, I didn't realize that the victim's family was the ones that needed to hire the crime scene cleanup. Kind of thought that was a thing Uh, that came with some shit happening at your house. Same. Like, because like, what if you can't afford it? Do you just let someone's blood and guts and stuff like sit there? I don't know. This is something I both want to look into and also don't really want to look into. I don't really want to look into it. No. So in these photos, the blood is not in just one area of the home. It's everywhere. It's on the floor in nearly every single room in the house. Some of this, I will say, is probably due to the fact that when paramedics arrived, they moved Josh while he was bleeding and still alive from the hallway to more open spaces so they could work on him. But still, they didn't move him to every single room. Yeah, that kind of sounds like he was chased and stabbed. Something along those lines. Rachel also had a photo of some bottle of some kind that looked like a cleaning fluid, as if someone had attempted to clean up the floor. But there was clearly way too much blood, so this is not something you can quickly clean up. Uh, yeah. There's also another photo of the hallway outside of Josh's bedroom door, and there's a hammer and a cordless drill charger. Rachel believes that in addition to being stabbed, that Josh was hit with the hammer, and that's why there's blood on the hammer. However, when she talked to the police about this, she was just brushed off. So one thing I will say, and this is give or take, however you want to look at it, I will upfront say I don't have enough evidence to really form my own opinion about how I feel. But Rachel, you can tell she really wanted to find things out. She wanted to know what happened to her brother, and she inserted herself into the investigation. Now, whether or not that was actually a help or a hindrance to the police is a matter of opinion. And it depends on who you ask. Yeah. depends on, you know, Rachel was trying to do anything she could. The police were also trying to do what they could. And so some of these things, you know, are, are from an interview with Rachel. And I just wanted to point that out. Like, I am not by any means saying she's at fault. I totally get it. To be honest, I'd be doing the same fucking thing. And I would have my own thoughts and opinions and I would be trying to get answers. And the police are doing that too. And I'm not going to sit here and make a call of right or wrong. But the police did feel like she was making this a little bit more difficult for them to solve. Because I hate to say it, but we talk about it all the time. The process takes much longer than we all feel like it should. Yeah. Well, and I feel like there is something that is so enticing and gripping about this narrative of like, the police have failed. It's up to me or it's up to one person to solve this case. I mean, it's it's a very, it's a very cinematic storyline. Mm-hmm. It's something you see in a lot of books, movies. It's something we've talked about in cases you know, we have a few examples and it's it's very gripping. It's, you know, us against the world mentality kind of thing. But in reality, while it's dramatic and gripping, I feel like that can a lot of times falsely lead you to that's like the proper storyline, I guess, right. or the, the proper way of things happening. And so, you know, the police brushing her off, they're bad. 
you know, they're, they're either incompetent or something. And honestly, I mean, when you were telling me, I was in that branch. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, she is solving shit. But no, in, in reality, I feel like a lot more times not letting the police do their proper investigation stuff, you are hindering the investigation or can hinder. Right. And then we look at the flip side of that, and there have been so many times that families have pushed forward, and that has been the reason cases are solved. So it's yeah. very much a give or take. And I just wanted to to insert like a perspective of looking at both sides of this, because it is important. And I feel like all things... To look at both sides and to understand both sides, and that's how you form your opinion. The other thing I will say, I didn't see any type of evidence from the coroner's report that showed anything like an impact wound from something like a hammer. Yeah, I feel like the blunt force trauma from a hammer is going to be very obvious, especially when the other weapon is a sword. I mean, it pretty much, you can't stab with a hammer You can't really blunt force trauma with a sword. So anything that is not a stab, there's probably going to be the hammer. And anything that is a stab, it's probably not going to be the hammer. Right. So then the police reports started coming in. Results from the crime lab's blood experts suggested that the blood was showing a pattern of struggle. Rick told police that he stabbed Josh once in the abdomen, but the blood pattern suggested more. There was more blood than one stab was going to cause, and it was everywhere, and it was showing signs of a struggle. Also, he had more than one stab wound. Exactly. The coroner's report supported the blood expert's conclusion. There were 10 sharp force injuries. There were slices to Josh's hands and fingers, some of these so deep that a few of his fingers were almost cut off. The path of the sword's fatal cut went left to right, front to back and upward, puncturing the liver, diaphragm, right lung, fracturing a rib, and exiting in Josh's back. So that is like an upward... Yeah, oh my god. The position of Rick's attorney, Stanley L. Friedman, he said that the cuts to Josh's hands were the result of trying to pull the sword out of his body after he was stabbed. So like grabbing onto the sword. I'm not thinking anyone's going to grab a sword tight enough to almost cut their own fingers fingers off. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Also, again, did he pull it out and then it slipped and fell back into him nine more times? Like, I'm not understanding why, like, where is the defense going to come up with a defense for that? Exactly. I'm like, I'm sorry, the coroner's report shows a whole hell of a lot more than a small stab wound for self-defense. So what are you getting at here? So basically, this self-defense claim is losing its credibility. Police also noted that there were three other exits from Rick's bedroom. There's the door to the hallway. That's the one that apparently was blocked by Josh. There was also the door to the bathroom and a sliding glass door that led into the backyard. So basically, if he felt threatened at all in the situation, there were ways for him to get out. He wasn't trapped. Yeah. So due to all of this, the police, they, they've they now got enough evidence. And mm-hmm. one year later, Rick was arrested on January 14th, 2016, and faced a possible sentence of life imprisonment with a chance of parole after 26 years, with prosecutors planning to ask Rick to be held on a $1 million bail. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, when they were asked by a reporter why they waited a year to actually charge Rick, because like I said, it had only been a couple of months when that evidence came through, when those reports came in. Yeah. 
there was no comment. There was no explanation. At a preliminary hearing, Rick's now ex-girlfriend took the stand. She was the only other witness to this crime other than Rick. So what she had to say was pretty valuable. But her testimony, unfortunately, was littered with a lot of I don't remembers. Mm. However, she did say that after she caught them fighting in the kitchen, she and Rick went back to his bedroom and locked the door. And she then mentioned that when they were in Rick's bedroom, Rick heard footsteps and he goes up to the door and grabs his sword and kind of faces the door. Josh then, according to his ex, kicked the door open and that is when Rick stabbed him. She said that it looked like it was just a poke. But what we know is that this poke was actually that fatal wound that went up through, you know, his liver and his lung and out his back. Uh, just a poke. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. She's saying it's a poke. It went out his back. Exactly. That is more than a poke. And there had to be force on, I would assume, both ends for it to do something that bad. Yeah. Also, you don't poke someone with a fucking sword. No. Rachel was in court that day. And she believes that there was a lot that Rick's girlfriend left out. And she, again, brings up the bloody hammer that was at the scene. If the hammer was next to the door and there's blood on it, well, he was stabbed next to the door. So there's blood everywhere there. Wouldn't it also make sense that that's how blood, like, he just bled onto the hammer? Right. Or that was blood spatter. Yeah. She also points out that during the 911 call, Josh was speaking very clearly, and you can hear him in the background fighting for his life, and she believes that someone hit him with the hammer to either knock him up, knock him out or shut him up. Again, that would have to be a pretty hard blow. Yeah, that would show obvious damage to the skull and stuff. My question is, if he's speaking clearly... But his diaphragm and one of his lungs is punctured. I'm, I guess I'm confused about the timing of that. Because I would assume if his diaphragm and lung are punctured, he can't really speak at all. Is that the case, though? Can you not speak if one of your lungs and part of your diaphragm is punctured? I mean, I wouldn't. At least not clearly at all. Maybe. Because your diaphragm's how you pull air into your lungs. So, like, you know, he could still breathe. Obviously, his diaphragm's not completely destroyed, but enough so to be able to speak normally. I don't know. Granted, that's that's her saying and describing, like, you know, he was speaking clearly. Well, but the thing, the thing is, she wasn't at home. She's, she's not there. And I am not trying to, like, steal her credibility or, or anything because I know she's, she is yeah. fighting for justice for her brother. Oh, absolutely. But again, like there are some inconsistencies in what I could find between like what she's saying, what Rick's saying, what his girlfriend, ex-girlfriend's saying. And that's one of the things about this case is like the truth is kind of hard to uncover. Yeah. On March 16th, 2017, Rick pleaded guilty to one felony count of voluntary manslaughter. So this was obviously a plea deal because, like I said, he was up for a possible life sentence with the possibility of parole after 26 years. This yeah. was the plea deal. For those that don't know, because I, I didn't, I was like, voluntary manslaughter? What's that? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that was a yeah, thing. So there's two kinds of manslaughter, voluntary and involuntary. Voluntary is the killing of a human being in which the offender acted during the heat of passion. 
under circumstances that would cause a reasonable person to become emotionally or mentally disturbed to the point that they cannot reasonably control their emotions. Voluntary manslaughter is, like I said, one of the two main types of manslaughter. The other is involuntary. So this is that whole passion, heat in the moment killing. That's dumb. The whole, they were so passionate, they murdered. I think that's a stupid defense. Because, I mean, we've all gone through terrible, like some of the most emotional, heart-wrenching things a person can go through in various stages in our lives and not murdered someone. I actually don't agree with you. I'm not trying to defend Rick because I think Rick is very much in the wrong and I think he's full of shit in a lot of his explanations. But I do believe in like that passionate moment of a crime happening. Do I think it's right? Absolutely not. Do I think these people should still be sentenced? Absolutely. But there is something to be said about being in an incident of, especially if you're being attacked. And that's like, fair. I mean, I know self-defense comes in there, but still it's depending on what your situation is, is how this whole like voluntary manslaughter versus self-defense comes into play. And it depends on how you feel in that moment versus what the moment actually is. Because when something so, so traumatic happens, a lot of the times you can respond more so with action and less with your mind. I'm not justifying that it's okay, but I'm saying that 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 is a true reaction. There's so many things in our minds and how that connects to our emotions and then our physical movements that I can't say that a crime of passion is not real. It is. No, saying that that's, it's right. You're absolutely yeah, right. Saying that it's right or okay, absolutely fucking not. You still shouldn't have done that. You should never get to the point to where you're killing someone. But knowing that emotions are driving that decision in the moment. I guess I just I think for me, when I think like crime of passion and stuff, the like typical incident that comes to my mind is the cliche like cheating. Oh, you walk in on your spouse yes. cheating. And you go into rage and murder. And I'm like, no, you're just a murderer. You are. It's a very slippery slope. Like, we cannot sit here and decide these things. Number one, we're not trained for these types of decisions. We just have our opinions about them, which is the beauty of this podcast. The thing is, it is a very difficult thing to put in black and white. There are gray areas. There are gray areas that I I lean more towards being like, more justified and there are gray areas that i lean towards being like no that's total bullshit you're just making an excuse for why you murdered someone so but i guess that there's also like such a gray area between you know the voluntary homicide and like crime of passion and second degree murder well and then just add in the layer of it being different by state and it is all complicated and then there's apparently like third degree murder i don't even know what that is I thought that was manslaughter, but... Oh, maybe. (laughs) So on March 30th, 2017, ready to get real mad, Rick was sentenced to the maximum of six years in prison. See, okay, and there's... (laughs) Therein lies my issue. If it was like, you know, crime of passion as a defense makes it voluntary manslaughter, and it's like 20 years in prison, or like a legitimate sentence, then okay, six years and that's the maximum that tells me a lenient judge could have given probation for killing someone or maybe not maybe just like a short sentence i don't know how probation and stuff like that works but still 
I know. And this is, and that's not even saying like early release because of good behavior or some shit like that. But the reality we're looking at is Rick's sentence is going to be over in March 2023. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? You still killed someone. And there's a lot of problems with it. We obviously have talked about all the problems in the justice system thus far. But I sometimes really, really hate plea bargains because a lot of the times it sucks for the victim. It doesn't give them what I think is adequate justice. Yeah. It's not even a year in prison for every time he plunged his sword into Josh. Yeah. That is such a realistic way to look at it. This killing of Josh, it does not make sense to his friends and his family. They saw him as a person who was defined by his love of animals, his very calm demeanor. So the idea that he would get in some type of argument that was this heated and that he would break into someone's room, it's really hard for them to process. But to this day, there really are only three people who know what happened. Rick, Josh, and Rick's girlfriend. She saw the whole thing. One of these people is in prison. One of these people is dead. And one of them is probably lying about what she saw and how much she's willing to report. So that is the murder of Josh Sutter. And also how Rick Medina was the Red Power Ranger that we watched on TV and also a murderer. The Red Power Ranger murdered someone with a sword. Wasn't the sword like his weapon or something? I don't even remember. I probably. It was probably like the power mighty morphin sword of truth. I, I. And so he was, I don't know, little dick energy. I have to own a sword. Probably. Who owns a sword? I mean. Come on. I, you know, I, I say that, but I also will say how much I loved going to the medieval fair as a kid. As, and I say as a kid in college, did I ever buy a sword? No. no. But would I have bought like a really, if I found like a really cute, like maybe a rose gold, like dagger looking thing? Maybe. Yeah, I know. I get that. I mean, I have an old family heirloom dagger. I use the mail opener. That's just a mini sword. <laughs> I mean, okay, if we're being real, a knife is a mini sword and we've all got very large knives in our kitchens. Yeah, but so I won't fully judge just owning a sword because also, you know, maybe owning a sword for like cultural reasons. If you're like Japanese and you like want to own a katana as heritage stuff, like, you know, that's that is not for me to say anything about. I think it's weird to own a sword that you use as self defense. I think that's more the weird thing. It's not like if it was just a sword, he, I don't know, hung in the living room. I wouldn't go over. I would be like, uh, you're going to murder me. <laughs> you have a sword. Me. No, but the thing is, it wasn't this nice sword that was an heirloom that was important. He was, it, it was by his door for protection. That's what makes this exactly. so up. It's his baseball bat, but it's a sword. Yeah. That's weird. That's fucking weird. Real weird, yo. Wow. Yeah, no, childhood's ruined today. Childhood's over. We're going to drink and be adults. We're going to drink because old. we are adults. Oh, yeah, that too. Well, thank y'all so much for tuning in, for listening to this episode. If y'all enjoyed it, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review us, give us those five stars, let us know what you loved. We love, love, love hearing everything y'all have to say. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Send us messages, chat with us, we'll get back to you. And that was basically the blood and wine voicemail that I just gave you guys. Sorry about that. I don't... <laughs> I know. I was judging Brittany like, 
We'll make sure to get back to you. Please leave your name, number, and a brief detailed message. Thank you. Apparently, I made too many calls today where people didn't answer, but there you go. Um, That's We'll get back to you. God. Well, with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.